good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to be talking to Professor Victor Bulmer Thomas, specialist in 20th century Latin American history and a past director at Chatham House. We are speaking today about his newest book, Empire in Retreat, the past, present, and future of the United States. Uh, welcome, Professor. Thank you. Uh, professor, what is the primary thesis of your book? That the United States became an empire based on territory fairly soon after independence, that this territorial empire eventually transformed itself into an empire based on institutions rather than territory, and that these institutions are now uh, less able to be controlled by the United States so that the empire itself is in retreat. What is uh, your response to someone like, say, Anthony Hopkins, uh, economic historian at Cambridge, who argues that prior to the American Civil War, 1861-1865, the United States could have could be said to have been a sort of in a neo-colonial relationship vis-a-vis the the UK. Well, I've read his book, his new book, and it's very impressive in many ways. But I definitely disagree with that because. If you look at the rivalry between the United Kingdom and the United States in those years, it's not at all clear that the United Kingdom uh, got its own way. On the contrary, if you look at a whole series of issues in uh, Central America to do with the control of a possible future canal, it's very clear that the United States, if anything, uh, was uh, more uh, powerful a player than the United Kingdom. And um, on the same subject, uh, I take it you would not agree with uh, his thesis in his uh, newest book, American Empire, that uh, in the post-1945 period, uh, the USA, uh, while one can characterize it as being uh, a hegemonic, if not the hegemonic empire, I'm sorry, uh, power, was not per se an empire in the normative sense that one uses that description for, say, the UK in the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century having an imperial power, imperial structure. No, I don't agree with that. Um, and I don't agree with it for a number of reasons. The first is that it's very misleading, I think, to reduce empire simply to the control of territory. Uh, empires, even territorial empires, have always found other ways of imposing their will on uh, other parts of the world. And it can take the place of protectorates, it can take the place of client states, control of institutions, and so on and so forth. And whatever of these uh, dimensions you look at, the United States was clearly more than hegemonic in the post-1945 period. And specifically, it was very clear that it was trying to set out 
a series of institutions in which the United States would have a privileged position and which would allow it to uh, impose its will, if you like, on uh, the rest of the world without the need for uh, traditional territories and colonies and so on. Can you explicate a bit for the audience uh, your statement on page six that the United States is quote, informal empire is much less extensive than it was 20 years, ago, 20 years ago, unquote. The number of countries that look to the United States uh, for leadership in world affairs is clearly shrinking. And that has come about for a, a large number of reasons. Uh, if you think of Latin America and the Caribbean, for example, uh, the United States uh, 20 years ago could almost invariably count on the support of a majority of countries in order to seek, through the organization of American states or whatever it was, a policy that worked in the interests of the United States. It can't do that any longer because there are relatively few countries in Latin America that will uh, that do look to the United States uh, for leadership in the way that they did before. That is now becoming true in Asia as well. And it's certainly true of the Middle East for a very long time. Now, can uh, you flesh out a bit in a more empirical fashion your statement that, um, I'm sorry, that the, quote, semi-global empire is retreating? Yes. Well, first of all, let me explain what I mean by semi-global, because uh, given that the empire that the United States forged after the Second World War never included uh, the Soviet Union and within a few years would not include the People's Republic of China, it's clearly misleading to refer to it as global, uh, and that's true whether you refer to global hegemony or global empire or whatever it is. So I use this phrase semi-global, which is perhaps not the uh, uh, the most attractive uh, description, but I think is probably pretty accurate. Uh, now, as to why that empire is in retreat, uh, it comes down to, uh, first of all, some basic uh, issues to do with empire, which is that they all eventually come to an end, and they do so for a mixture of internal and external reasons. And in the United States, we can see both forces at work. Certainly on the internal side, there is less appetite, if you like, for carrying the burdens of empire than there was in the past. I see the victory of uh, President Trump in 2016 as, in a way, an illustration of the unwillingness of a large part of the U.S. electorate to uh, to pay the imperial burden, to pay that price any longer. And looking outside the United States at the external forces at work, it's clear that with the U.S. as a shrinking part of the world economy, other countries, notably China, and are in a much stronger position now to both resist uh, U.S. pressures, but also, to some extent, to uh, impose their own uh, agenda on world affairs. Can you, uh, although you've um, discussed it a little bit, can you uh, flesh out uh, your statement that the U.S. built an empire, quote, uh, upon institutional rather than territorial control, unquote? Yes, very much so. The, the origin of the empire is territorial, and I see the expansion across the United States 
as very much uh, an exercise in territorial imperialism in just the same way that Russia expanded uh, across the Eurasian uh, continent in the 18th and 19th century. But of course, uh, just as in the case of uh, Russia, eventually these territories became absorbed into the Union as states. Um, leaving uh, a relatively small number of territories outside uh, the, the Union and uh, places like Puerto Rico and Guam and the northern Mariana Islands and so on. So clearly that isn't sufficient to justify referring to the United States as an empire just by looking at the territories that it still controls. Uh, so what I talk about in the book is the uh, very deliberate attempt which actually started in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, to craft institutions in which the United States would have a privileged position and through those institutions allow it to exercise very much uh, the privileges of empire. It began first in the uh, continent of the Americas, as you would expect, with the uh, formation of various organizations of, uh, uh, of uh, American states, initially called by, by different names, um, through uh, the system of, uh, uh, of judicial courts set up for the Central American countries based in Washington with judges appointed by the United States and all that sort of thing. But, of course, that was just for the Americas. What's interesting is that after Woodrow Wilson's failure to... Uh, established the United States as a key member within the League of Nations because it wasn't ratified by the Senate, that uh, process then had to be postponed until after the Second World War. But when it happened, the United States was in such a strong position vis-a-vis -vis all the other countries that it was able to establish with relatively little resistance a set of institutions in which it did have a privileged position like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the United Nations Security Council and later on um, in the uh, trade organizations and of course in NATO itself. And um, but, but isn't it the fact that in the case of uh, Latin America uh, up to 1939 at least uh, the United States, even though it, you could argue or people do posit that uh, it was a hegemon or regional hegemon vis-a-vis uh, -vis Latin America, that it was the UK rather than the USA, which uh, was the primary trading partner for most of these countries, as well as the financier in terms of uh, raising capital. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, the United States... Um had achieved uh, parity with the United Kingdom uh, even before the First World War when it came to the importance of uh, trade and investment links with Latin America. And were it not for the very special position that the United Kingdom had in Argentina, uh, if you exclude Argentina, then the United States was more important than the UK uh, um, uh, by the time the First World War started. And obviously, it became much more important after that, even including Argentina. But was that true also in places like Brazil? The issue, of course, being that until 1914, uh, U.S. banks were not allowed to have branches overseas. Yes, that's correct. But if you look at the trade uh, relations, uh, the United States... Uh, 
was, uh, it, I mean, obviously the United States trading position was uh, uh, less important as you go south. So it was the most important in Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, very important in Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, and then less important as you go south through Brazil and eventually into Argentina. And you're quite right that the uh, the restrictions on U.S branch banking abroad up to 1914 uh, did impose some limitations. But ultimately, uh, 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 even uh, allowing for that, the U.S. had become uh, stronger in Latin America as a whole than the United Kingdom by the First World War. Now, going into the post-1945 period, you give prominent attention to non-state actors who could be said to under have underpinned the American empire. Who were these non-state actors and how do they operate? Yes, I give a huge amount of importance to that because clearly uh, an empire uh, based on institutions uh, does require reinforcing in all sorts of ways, both inside and outside the country. And inside the country, i.e. inside the United States, these non-state actors have played a crucial role. Uh, uh, they come in uh, various categories. I talk about the role of the U.S. multinational corporations, uh, which had a sort of symbiotic relationship with the uh, federal government uh, for many decades after the Second World War, much less now, of course. Um, uh, they reinforced each other's uh, uh, needs and requirements. And you can't say that one dominated the other. It's that they had a symbiotic relationship. I also talk about a very close relationship between the United States uh uh, federal government and the media, uh, the, the mainstream media, uh, <laughs> at a time when, of course, uh, uh, mainstream media was mainly print, radio, and television, and the uh, largely supportive role that uh, the mainstream media gave to the imperial ambitions of the of the U.S. government. I talk about uh, the role of the think tanks and of the uh, international grant-giving bodies such as the Ford Foundation, uh, which also played an extremely supportive role. And finally, to the religious organizations, and in particular, the evangelical organizations, uh, which again uh, played a key role in underpinning uh, this uh, post-war empire based on institutions. Uh, in uh, your discussion of uh, American relationship vis-a-vis -vis Western Central Europe after 1945, uh, you appears to me to ignore the rather extensive literature. I'm thinking in particular of Geyer Lundstedt, uh, Victoria de Gracia. Um, in the case of Geyer Lundstedt, he has came up with his rather uh, pertinent phrase, empire by imitation, that it was West European countries who were anxious at United States in as, as it were, establish a hegemonic position rather than the converse? Well, I'm familiar with that literature, and I have um, great respect for it. Um, so I wouldn't say I ignore it, uh, but it's true that I don't fully agree with it. Uh, not that it wasn't uh, something that uh, most uh, Euro Western European countries uh, didn't support. Of course they did. Uh, but the fact is that um, this was very much uh, 
in the interests of the United States as well. So now, although history is being rewritten to some extent by arguing that the United States, you know, has been dragged unwillingly into uh, uh, the support of uh, Western European security and defense interests and all the rest of it, uh, the fact is that uh, after the Second World War, it was very much in the United States' interest uh, that Europe should play a supportive role in this expanding um, uh, American empire. And um, the United States went to enormous lengths to make sure that that was the case, including manipulating elections in uh, France and Italy. In the same section of the book, you also appear to disparage what is termed the special relationship between the USA and the UK in the post-45 period. Uh, But isn't there a good body of literature, I'm thinking people like Robin Edmonds and John Young, among others, who show in their scholarly treatments that the UK enjoyed a closeness in the formulation of American policy that by, uh, by all standards was unprecedented as well as unparalleled, no other outside power vis-a-vis the USA having anywhere near the amount of access in terms of policy formulation as well as influence. No, I don't agree with that at all. I don't think that empires can afford to have special relations, certainly not a semi-global empire. They cannot afford to have a special relationship in that sense with any single country uh, because to do so would then cause um, enormous problems with other countries. Uh, in fact, U.S. presidents have been quite uh, cautious about using the phrase special relationship in relation to the UK until after they've ceased to be in office. Uh, it's very different in the UK, which constantly talks about the special relationship as if it was somehow uh, a, a given in, uh, in transatlantic relationships. It's really difficult to point to any area where the United Kingdom has changed the position of the United States from something that it was going to do anyway. And there are plenty of examples where the United States has castigated the United Kingdom uh, for doing something which it disapproved of. Oh, isn't there an example? Well, one of the pertinent examples in this literature is uh, uh, NATO or um, the formulation of a West European military bloc. Uh, apparently, again, the literature is rather extensive, that the primary um, motivating force initially was the UK in terms of getting the United States interested in 1948? Well, uh, again, that's uh, something that is uh, quite easy to challenge because from the time of uh, 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 (coughs) the launch of the Truman Doctrine, it was clear that the United States was going to need some sort of uh, 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 defense uh, umbrella, security umbrella, in which to uh, exercise uh, its ambitions in in that particular direction. What the United Kingdom has always been very clever at is anticipating uh, the directions in which U.S. policy is going and kind of taking credit when it goes in that direction uh, anyway. Uh, But certainly whether it comes to NATO or the Bretton Woods institutions or uh, uh, other things like that, I really am not persuaded that the United Kingdom has played such a crucial role. 
And if you now look at the, for example, the uh, the really brilliant and detailed accounts of uh, the uh, uh, Bretton Woods Conference, the way in which the United States marginalized uh, the British delegation led by John Maynard Keynes is quite extraordinary and it is totally different from the kind of official version that we had in the United Kingdom for many years, that the UK was an equal partner with the United States. On page 198, you make reference to South Korea as a, quote, American protectorate, unquote. Isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think when your defense is in the hands of a foreign power, you cannot be other than a protectorate. Uh, of course, uh, South Korea has gone on to be an enormous economic success in large part because of the support that it received uh, from the United States. Uh, but I think uh, part of the um, definition of a sovereign state is that it is responsible for its own defense, and South Korea is not. Uh, yes, but uh, when one employs the word protector, one thinks more or less of, say, Egypt between uh, 1882 and 1922, rather than South Korea. Uh, well, again, you have... Uh, uh, I mean, Egypt's protectorate status was uh, was written into a bilateral treaty with the United Kingdom, and South Korea's uh, protectorate status, from my point of view, is is written is written into the uh, bilateral uh, defense and security treaty with the United States. Uh, in your account of the near Middle East in the post forty-five period. Uh, you seem to ignore the fact that the U.S. had no military bases in the area between 1962 and 1980, and that prior to 62, it only had one military base, which was in Saudi Arabia, a rather insignificant Air Force base. Well, I'm not sure it was insignificant. Uh, certainly, uh, it wasn't seen that way by either Saudi Arabia or the United States. Of course, uh, you're looking at a period where, for many years, the United States was able to work through the basis that the United Kingdom had in that area. Uh, uh, and therefore, it's, if you like, empire at one remove. But it's still empire because the United States was in a very strong position to ensure that the United Kingdom was uh, uh, acting in such a way as to uh, promote U.S. interests in that area. And that's true of uh, Bahrain and uh, other places where the British had uh, military bases at that time. Uh, you characterize the American invention in, in the Lebanon in 1958 as, quote, an invasion, unquote. Is that entirely accurate? After all, the Americans were invited in by the Lebanese president, Shamoun. Uh, yes, I think it's accurate. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, sometimes difficult uh, to uh, determine to what degree uh, uh, an invitation uh, is a true expression of independence and to what extent it's something that's uh, uh, forced upon the country. There have many, been many times when the United States has intervened by invitation, quote-unquote, but effectively it's been um, a U.S. decision over which the um, other countries had no control. Uh, could it be argued that uh, 
per contra to your statement in the book that Cento, the Near East or Middle Eastern version or attempted version of uh, NATO, uh, was not per se a sort of handmaiden of American hegemony uh, or imperialism, but in fact uh, British in origin. I mean, the British, the ones who, with the uh, Iraqis, uh, are the ones who first formulated the the uh, entity, and they actually the Americans in 1955, the Americans were reluctant to get involved in all and only became uh, a member of the organization in 1958, by which time after the downfall of the monarchy in Iraq, it was sort of a damp squib. Well, the Middle East is always an area where the United States has had uh, difficulty projecting uh, uh, itself as, as an empire because it faced established imperial interests not just the British, but also the French. And it also had to deal with the Soviet Union after the uh, Second World War. Uh, so it's not surprising that the United States worked through proxies, uh, and the British were the most reliable from their point of view, and therefore they were happy to... Um, uh, 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 to give the British a very substantial role in uh, what they were achieving to achieve in the Middle East. But again, it's a, a bit like what we were talking about earlier on. Uh, it's that the, the, to some extent, the British are simply doing things uh, which uh, they knew would be of interest to the United States uh, while giving the impression of being uh, an independent actor, which in my view, they were not really. Can you um, describe American policy in the unipolar moment post-1990 or 1991? Well, it was very clear, uh, particularly once uh, 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 Bill Clinton was elected as president, that this was a unique opportunity uh, to reshape the world. And uh, Clinton would often uh, uh, give expression to the uh, importance of uh, creating institutions and rules and mechanisms which would be in place there and allow the United States uh, a privileged position after it ceased to be uh, so important in world affairs. Um, the trouble is that that opportunity uh, was not uh, 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 seized uh, in the right way, and far too much of uh, the unipolar moment was spent in, in unilateral imperial exercises, which clearly don't leave a lasting legacy. Um, had much more effort been put into the reform of the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, and all the rest of it, it might have been a very different story. It wouldn't have uh, stopped the empire from eventually going into retreat, but it might have delayed the, the, the process. Do you really believe that uh, President George Bush, the elder, would have invaded Iraq in 2003 like his son did? After all, he had the opportunity to do so in 1991 and chose, in retrospect, very wisely not to do so. I don't know. Um, uh, and, and nobody knows, to be absolutely clear about that. Um, he, uh, he might have. Uh, but he might not. I'm perfectly willing to accept that uh, that particular decision uh, depended very much on the uh, individuals involved because it clearly didn't respond to any 
uh, obvious uh, 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 national strategic interest. Can you uh, uh, explicate and describe the what you you characterize as quote internal forces unquote which are causing the decline in the American empire as you see them? Yes, I think um, it's a series of factors, uh, the root of which is primarily economic. Um, empires always have citizens and subjects. And of course, the citizens are the citizens of the United States. And by tradition, it doesn't matter so much in an empire what happens to the subjects, but it matters an awful lot what happens to the citizens. In other words, the citizens must feel that they are sharing in uh, the benefits of empire because they are, after all, sharing in the costs. But what has happened to the U.S. economy in the last 40 years uh, shows that many of the citizens are not sharing in the benefits of economic growth and are therefore not sharing in the benefits of uh, empire, and certainly not in the way that they were in the first three decades after the Second World War. That has created a lot of resentment. Uh, it's led to uh, the rise of uh, uh, Trumpism, if we may call it that. It's led to the rise of a movement against globalization, which is, of course, a U.S. Uh, creation, and it's uh, most recent uh, uh, guys. Um, and all of this, I think, is ex helping to explain the internal forces that are resisting uh, or undermining uh, uh, American empire. Can you um, uh, explain to the listeners the historical background of those that you label, quote, anti-expansionists, unquote, Sorry, could you repeat that question? Um, sorry. Can you um, uh, go into the historical background, as you do in the book, of uh, those that you label, quote, anti-expansionist, unquote? Uh, yes. Anti-expansionism uh, is one of those anti-imperialist uh, traditions in the United States, uh, which was very strong in the uh, early part of the empire, in the late uh, 18th and uh, 19th centuries, um, uh, then became uh, much less significant. Uh, but today, I think it has uh, re-emerged. Of course, its origins uh, go back to those who fear that the larger the republic, the less democratic it would be. And therefore, the expansion of the United States uh, across the continent was going to put in danger the uh, 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 republican and uh, democratic basis of, of the, this new country and risk uh, the establishment of authoritarian tendencies. Um, and the importance of this anti-expansionist tradition has waxed and waned over the last uh, 250 years. But I see it re-emerging now, um, albeit in a slightly different form. Can it be said that the amount of government debt um, in the case United States government debt, really be a very important negative variable as per the continuation of the American empire. After all, in the post-1815 period, the British empire, or I should say the UK, uh, had a huge government debt, more than 200% of then GDP. 
which did not prevent the UK uh, exercising its uh, hegemonic position, at least outside of Europe, between um, 1815 to 1914? Uh, no, I would disagree with that, because um, the uh, those are the years, if you take the UK, those are the years in which... Uh, the United, uh, the United Kingdom ran a uh, surplus on uh, the current account of the balance of payments uh, almost year in, year out, allowing it to uh, export capital uh, to uh, the rest of the world, which was very much uh, uh, what was needed in order to uh, strengthen its um, imperial ambitions and all the rest of it. Uh, and so the rest of the world uh, uh, were uh, in debt, if you like, to uh, the, the British Empire. Um, so if you're looking at the net position of the United Kingdom, it was very much a creditor nation in those years. And it's only when it became a debtor in net terms uh, uh, after the First World War, uh, and even more so after the Second World War, that the uh, its imperial pretensions uh, were severely undermined. Uh, it's, in the case of the United States, of course, the United States did not become a net creditor until quite late, uh, basically in the, 19, the 1890s, when you start to see strong uh, surpluses in, uh, in, in the balance of payments, allowing the United States to export capital relatively easily to uh, other parts of the world, which it, which it of course, did. Uh, and it is normal for empires to be uh, in this uh, creditor position because once you've become a net debtor and you start to uh, depend on borrowing from the rest of the world, uh, you are in a slightly uh, weaker position. So uh, when, as in the case of the, of the United States, you have these large current account deficits which have to be financed by importing capital from the rest of the world, it does mean that those countries that control uh, those uh, 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 those credits that they are lending to the United States do get some uh, leverage. If you look at the position of uh, of Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, it's no longer so much based on the fact that uh, the United States used to import oil from Saudi Arabia because that's less important now. But it's certainly true that Saudi Arabia has provided vast amounts of credit to the United States in forms of um, the money that it has lent. And that gives it some leverage over U.S. policy. So you would not agree with people like Martin Wolf of the Financial Times who argue that as long as the capital which is being imported is in American dollars, the economic effects are not that detrimental? No, I don't agree with that because, uh, you know, it used to be the case for the United Kingdom that everything was in sterling. But the fact is that once it went from being a creditor to being a debtor, it definitely weakened uh, the position of the United States, of the, of the United Kingdom. And I think in the case of the United States, it didn't really matter, not so much because it was in dollars. It didn't really matter for a time because the main uh, sources of credit were friendly countries like Japan and, and West Germany, now Germany. It's a different matter today because the United States is effectively borrowing from all sorts of uh, countries, including some that are not particularly friendly. And that, I think, makes a difference. Uh, on page 314, you seem to imply that Russia's annexation of Crimea was caused by or connected with NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe, which is a um, 
interpretation uh, differing from specialists like uh, Paul Wilson or Roy Allison. Why, why do you um, uh, have that interpretation then? I think that <laughs> I used to work with Roy Allison, so I'm very familiar with his, uh, at Chatham House, I'm very familiar with his uh, writings. And again, he's extremely knowledgeable. But I think in this particular case, uh, the NATO summit in 2008, uh, which uh, set out uh, a statement saying that uh, Ukraine would become a uh, member of NATO, really set alarm bells ringing in uh, in in Russia, uh, and therefore, uh, and and <laughs> ultimately, I think was. Uh, uh, responsible for the decision of uh, Russia, which of course is illegal under international law. No one doubts that. But it was probably that more than anything else which uh, set Russia on the path to eventual annexation of Crimea. It's worth remembering that uh, Crimea is where the uh, Russian is the only significant uh, port on the Black Sea that Russia has. It's where it's uh, nuclear submarines are based. Uh, it's not uh, just a piece of real estate like uh, any other. And uh, uh, Russia has always regarded uh, Ukraine and indeed uh, Crimea as being uh, effectively uh, uh, just part of, uh, of Russian territory. It's different from, say, Lithuania or Latvia, which have a tradition as nation states. It goes back a uh, a long time. Ukraine doesn't have that. And so uh, Russia has looked on Ukraine, rightly or wrongly, in a rather different way to what it's looked uh, on other parts of the former Soviet Union. On page 359 of the book, you state that in 12 years' time, the American empire will be, quote, a pale shadow of itself, unquote. Is that a rhetorical sleight of hand or a bit of an exaggeration? Well, neither, I hope. Uh, of course, I finished the, the, the draft of this book uh, just as uh, Donald Trump was being elected to the presidency. Uh, but everything that has happened since uh, he has taken office uh, suggests that the imperial retreat is accelerating. Uh, I mean, only this week, as you and I are talking, uh, uh, President Trump has uh, launched an attack on two key institutions that have underpinned uh, uh, U.S. empire. Uh, 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 one is NATO and the other is uh, the WTO. And so uh, I see the uh, imperial retreat as accelerating under under President Trump. And so I think when I say in 12 years' time, then I, I, I think far from being an exaggeration, that may be an underestimate. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, the lesson I really hope that people will take away is that imperial retreat is not the same as the decline of the nation state. Um, I'm not a declinist. I don't believe that the United States itself is in decline just because I'm talking about imperial retreat. It's really important to distinguish between the two. Uh, I point out in my book that uh, when empires retreat, uh, uh, if it happens mainly for internal reasons, there's no reason why the nation state can not only survive, but can even prosper. 
And I give the example of uh, of France or the United Kingdom, for example, as, as an illustration of that. If it happens mainly for external reasons, as in the case of the Ottoman Empire or the German Empire, then it's a very different story, and the nation-state would indeed uh, suffer. And because I believe that imperial retreat in the United States is taking place mainly for internal reasons, I believe that there's all sorts of reasons why citizens of the United States and indeed citizens of the rest of the world can't be quite positive about this process. I think that, I think the the nation state, the U.S. nation state, uh, could indeed be strengthened by the middle of this century as a result of this long process of imperial retreat that we're currently witnessing. Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thank you for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much indeed. Indeed.